0: Commonwealth of Kwanzaa Society's talk show. This show has been created to bring to light the need for a centralized culture in the African-American community and to show how many of the struggles in the black community are rooted in the lack of a centralized African-based culture in the black race as it exists in Western Hemisphere and Western civilization in general. My name is Clarence Jones, your host today, and I will use this show to make a case for using the fall holiday of Kwanzaa as a platform for the many different kinds of black people to gather around Kwanzaa would be taken and turned into a year round system instead of a once uh, a year, once a year holiday. Uh, a legitimate question of course, is why did I pick Kwanzaa for this platform? And I think that's a legitimate question. A great question. Kwanzaa is, uh, it is African. It, uh it is, African descent is of African origin, but is not specific to a particular African ethnic group or ethnicity or tribe. So it is inclusive to all African peoples. Kwanzaa would be uh, Kwanzaa is a first fruits harvest celebration that does not infringe upon religion, nationality, geography, or ethnicity. The African peoples need an ancestry-based system that all different types of Black people can rally around. Which would lead to better camaraderie, familiarity, which would lead to better com- uh, continuity and more camaraderie, which would lead to an enhanced ability to organize, coordinate, and orchestrate. Um, and of course, the results of all these uh, all these processes together are what is called unity, and that's a key ingredient that's been lacking in the black community and has hampered its ability to basically act as one organism and so this whole show is dedicated to trying to make a case for using the fall holiday of kwanzaa as that platform so different types of black people can come together and rally uh as one unit when necessary uh the black community has a history of being decentralized and uh going back to slavery, going back to African tribes literally warring on each other to enslave their neighbors, to enslave other tribes that they then turned around and sold to European uh, tradesmen up and down the coast. I actually just learned that not only I knew that the Af- the European traders, the Portuguese and I think the Spanish, uh, utilized other Africans to help capture africans i was not aware I, I didn't know that the biological threat africa posed to the europeans literally made going into the continent uh, dangerous to their health they literally caught malaria and they could not survive for too long in the interior of africa so literally the white tradesmen had to could go really no further than the coastline of africa so he, they literally needed other Africans to help them build their slave trade, which they then helped to build their empire. All of the European countries became uh, colonial empires that had the power, had powerful navies, had powerful economies, and had powerful armies that then came back and dominated the third world. They simply, and, and that's not as immoral and complicated as one might think. They became powerful nations that had powerful militaries, had powerful navies, had powerful economies, that had very influential politics. They simply dominated the other countries on the planet that did not possess those things. Oddly enough, most of those countries that were dominated by the colonial Europeans were countries that didn't engage in slavery or didn't have powerful economies and did not have powerful armies. So, you know, you can make a a moral judgment against those people, people if you want to but it served their interest clearly um, you know you may not like it may not it may be immoral and i what, what obviously i agree i'm an african american but it served their purpose they became the power brokers of planet earth not just their not just europe and, uh, and at the time of uh, the middle east who was at the basically the middle east at, during the dark ages was basically the first world the middle east was the industrialized world today, uh, three to four or five hundred years ago, or definitely during the Middle Ages. They were going through their turmoil, and so now the upstart European colonial nations became the new first world, and they became the the carte blanche of power, authority, and having success. So you can look at them negatively on that if you want to, but it served their interest and it served their purpose At the end of the day, they were left standing and on a higher level than most people economically, certainly, um, socially, militarily, and security-wise. So, you know, they weren't. They weren't. uh, They well, when they were, when they fought, they fought amongst each other. When you talk about the Europeans, so there was a certain point once the Ottoman Empire perished. You know, there weren't that many uh, non-European incursions in Europe. There were typically, basically, all of it was Europeans fighting other Europeans because there weren't other nations that were powerful enough to really threaten them. The Japanese attack during World War II, which at that point is still hundreds of years after the beginning of colonialism, probably three to 400 years, J- Japan began attacking Western colonies, not necessarily the threat eating Great Britain, you know, uh so these are the things this is you know colonialism paid off for the europeans so the reality of that is who helped them to get to this point the reality is is other africans did this and the reality was literally on a physical level the white men could not go into a- continental africa they physically couldn't do it they needed assistance from other africans and they got just that so these these are the points that i want to make culture, our lack of a centralized game plan has always been a, a, a defeat. It's been a liability for us and an asset for other people. And so we, and even when you look at issues today and in years past, you see this same trend. When you look at the migration post-slavery to, uh, by African Americans after the Civil War, coming to the inner cities of, of the east and the West uh, the post the post-slavery Africans who left uh, the peonage system uh, that uh, existed after slavery now the peonage the system was the surf system that was put in place after the Civil War that basically made the freedmen so-called freedmen and the sharecroppers essentially slaves they could not leave the property economy was still built on black labor and black cheap labor so they couldn't have too many of them just leaving and migrating and so they put in rules and they, they made them take loans out on the land where they owed the landowners more than they could ever pay back so the, the, um, the they were basically indentured servants they were basically serfs this is post-slavery now this is 1880 1875. Civil War ended in 65. Uh, Initially, the Union Army was uh, in the South, and during that period you had a lot of advancement by African Americans. You had a black governor, I think, of Louisiana during this time. But um, a presidential election occurred, and a deal was struck in the Congress with southern states, congressmen, that said, okay, we'll vote for. It. I guess it was a dispute over of, over a presidency, and uh, they said, okay, we'll vote for you. You take care of your interests, but you got to get this Union Army out of the South and let us handle our own affairs according to what we want to do. If you don't do this, we're not going to side with you. Period. So a deal was struck. The uh, Union troops were taken out of the South, and of course, that's when the peonage system was put in place slave crow uh, codes and um, Jim Crow laws were put in place that disenfranchised black and and blacks, the existing black labor population. Again, we we get too moralized by everything about racism. Oh, I don't like black people living next door to me and and all of this. All this stuff, this all came from money and the accumulation of money. So the the problem with the slave, uh, with the agrarian economy in the South, their money was good and consistent, uh, be it uh, tobacco, cotton, rice, um, sugar, whatever was whatever their 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 co- their trade was, whatever their products were, whatever their crop was, they made their money, but the profit margin just wasn't very big. So uh, when you talk about 1777 and sharecroppers and landowners, there wasn't enough. Pro- um, There was not enough profit, even though it was consistent, meaning you're not going to make 67% profit. You're probably going to make 27% profit. But since this is a product that's necessary, you're going to make this profit year in and year out for the next 50 years, guaranteed. But your profit margins weren't going to be big. So the landowners in the South had a problem. Free, uh, free black people, fair treatment, franchise was not affordable. They could not give black people freedom. If you give them freedom, then you got to pay them what they normally should get paid for whatever their labor is. They could not afford that and make their own profit. So we have to disenfranchise them, bound them to the land, and usurp their cheap labor for our benefits. That's where. Um, segregation, Jim Crow, all of that in the South emanated from. It wasn't from, oh, we just don't like black people. There were economic necessities to it that, um, you know, put them in that position. So uh, they were forced to stay there, If, if this is 1877 and you're a sharecropper, you're a black sharecropper in the South, you could not leave the property without permission of the landowner. You bought all your clothes and food from the landowner or someplace. Uh, your children were bound by the legal. So if you died and you owed the landlord money, your children owed the landlord money. So no one could leave. Now, this is a, we, we had a civil war and no one can leave in the South uh, without the permission of the landlord. And then, of course, you know, when you have this, you, you know, slavery and even servitude. It's literally a state of war between you and that labor because you're taking their labor for free or at an unfair advantage to you. So these people are literally a threat to you, even if they don't mean to be. They are a threat to you. Their presence is threatening because they are the they are the outsiders. They are the enemy that you're taking something from that you're not really legitimately giving them. Um, you know something fair. There's not a fair exchange between you. And the labor, so they are your enemy, whether they know it or not, which I think has followed us uh, uh, today in America. Now, that's a, that's definitely a residue of racism and of race, but it emanated from economics. It emanated. So so the blacks were controlled, and again, if it's 17, 1877, black men who were congregating together just for no reason would get arrested, <laughs> of course. If you were wandering around at night, you would get arrested. And of course, and then, of course, during the 60s, 1960s, and, 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 and I think even today, you definitely get scooped up and put into slave gangs and put into uh, labor games. And so uh, that was definitely part of it. But all of that was from economics. So now let's look at black people who now have the ability to get away from that. When did they get away from that, and where did they go? They got away from that. So again, we we established the South and the servitude of blacks because their labor was still needed. It was a bulwark of the Southern economy, but franchise and equality was not something that literally was affordable. So they're in the South as a cheap source of labor that is controlled and never going to give the right to vote, never given any franchise. And then the social aspect the social aspect emanates from the economics. So now when that sharecropper goes in town and goes to get food and goes to walk around, he need, they need to have a certain demeanor with the white folks because the white folks are afraid of them because of, because of their potential as far as rebellion. So it's very important to be subservient to white folks um, in the minds of white folks and then it became in the minds of black folks. Now there were consequences of that too. You have all this rage in you you can't take it out on the white folks because they're waiting on you to do that. So who do you take it out on? You take it out on all the black people. So all of that emanates from that slave code and that plantation um, society that was created. And so now, where are we going from there? The blacks at some point get a chance to go to leave the South, some of them. Uh, get a t- Oh, and another thing about that, when the blacks started migrating, here's how you know how important the blacks were to the black to the slave and the plantation economy and the ecosystem of the of the South. Meaning, their leaving would make it collapse. They had white people. Um, they had white slave catchers. Now, this is after the war. Now, chasing black people down, forcing them to come back to the South because they owed debt to the landlords um, post slavery. So you had that going on too. That just goes to show how important that black labor was to the black e- to the white slave plantation ecosystem. So anyway, moving on, we now have the great migration of freedmen, freed former slaves, uh, transporting themselves to the cities of America. So that's New York City, Philadelphia. Washington, D.C., in some instances, all the way up to Boston. And uh, the Louisiana and Mississippi and Texas, uh, really Louisiana and Texas uh, freedmen went west to California. And then the Mississippi, Arkansas people uh, would head, uh, they would head to Chicago. And so you have all of these things. Now, there were already blacks existing. In these cities before the slaves got there, and so the the black zombie nation that I referred to in this show is really referring to the inability of black people to take it, all of its resources, pool them together, and use them efficiently and effectively for their own survival and prosperity. Survival is one part of existing on this planet. Survival means I have a, I'm not I didn't die. I almost died yesterday, and I'm not going to die today. And what happened that almost killed me yesterday, I have taken care of, so my chances of survival today is higher. That's survival. That's any animal, that's any ecosystem, that's any ethnic group, that's any people. Survival is one of the, obviously, an integral part of existing on on this planet. When we talk about prospering, when we talk about creating, when we talk about, you know, uh, collaborating, that's another level that you have to get to. That takes planning. That takes execution. That takes building. Uh, all those things cannot be done without coordinating with a group, another group, without coordinating with your neighbor. And then when you realize that for some restrained step, or some, is for some strange reason, you and your neighbor and all those neighbors from all you can see look a certain color or or have a certain texture or look a certain way, well, you're probably some type of ethnic group. So your first instinct, inclination, should be to survive, obviously, but what can we do as a group to increase our chances of survival Uh, and, 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 and creating a society, creating... Prosperity is a way of doing that because that is being proactive with dealing with your survival. So if, go back, go back to surviving. I almost died to that yesterday because something, uh, obviously something, almost killed me. Now I put in a system today to survive, but civilization and society creating is when you do that and you create a system that not only takes out the possibility of you not surviving, puts in a situation where all the threats to you are taking out, and not only are they taken out, you have a chance of prospering and and, and, and multiplying and thriving. So not only are you not challenged, you're going to thrive. You're going to continue to grow. You know, if this is, you know, and, and you know, Jurassic Park, is a great uh example when the humans were put on the island with prehistoric um, animals they were simply food for the animals they were simply prey so the chances of people uh living a long life and you know expanding and, and propagating and, and 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 just growing as a race the human race would not be good on that island you know what i'm saying They they would have one choice on that island with the prehistoric T-Rexes. They would have to kill all the T-Rexes. They would have to get another source of food, another, you know, another, you know, another hunting source for the uh, Tyrannosaurus, well, I can't even say it, the T-Rexes. They would have to get another food source for the T-Rexes, again, eradicate the T-Rexes, move themselves on the island where the T-Rexes can't get to, they're pretty powerful in, I don't know, not too many places, get up maybe up in the trees and create a society up there, maybe move to the caves on the island, maybe um, create islands, you know, man-made islands off of the coast of the island. There are a lot of options to existing with these Tyrannosaurus Rexes, these T-Rexes, in which the human society, too, you know, could exist and maybe prosper, but they would have to be organized and coordinated first. My point there is, it couldn't just be happenstance. It's not just going to happen on its own. If you're put on the, on the, you know, on the Jurassic Park island, there is no we're going to hopefully survive. Eventually, all the T Rexes are going to eat all of the people. It's that simple. As Soon as they find you, you're a food source, and so that's true. In a, you know, and this is a metaphor, but it's, it's the metaphor holds. You have to be active if you want to survive. If you want to prosper, you have to be coordinated, organized, unified, and you have to have a game plan and a playbook. It's that simple? Culture is that. Culture does that for a lot of people, and it um it um and it um it helps you. um, It helps you to survive. It increases your probability of survival. That simple. So this is what people need to do. And, And so this show is dedicated to showing the need for that and showing how urgent that need is and the consequences of not having it. And I guess the metaphor is good. It's like being on Jurassic Park around a lot of Tyrannosaurus Rexes and not having any type of game plan, not having any weapon, and in, in in that in that movie, the the handguns and the rifles, how effective were they against the T Rexes? They weren't that effective. You know, it's it's another you know this is a new type of entity, a new type of animal that you've never encountered. So this this animal was here millions of years ago. So you deal with other humans that a bullet can pierce the skin and, and incapacitate or kill them. It's another animal with, it's another story with a Tyrannosaurus rex, a T-Rex. It's not the same. So that's, I guess that's what culture does. It helps you deal with the T-Rex in an organized fashion. The reality is if you don't and you deal with the T-Rex without uh, an organized game plan, you're going to be annihilated. You're going, you're simply going to be fooled. That's simple. And so... This show is dedicated to that, and that lack of understanding, that lack of a centralized culture, is what I mean when I talk about Black Zombie Nation. That we are a nation that's not organized, that's not, and when we do, we simply don't take all of the resources we can and we should to in, that, to utilize these resources to ensure our survival and ensure, on the next level, our prosperity and growth. And so. When the new freedmen uh, came from the south to the northern cities, there were already blacks there. There was already a black population. Now, these black populations uh, were not enslaved, uh, and and, in many instances they were um, educated. Not all. They existed in in a northern atmosphere that was not as hostile, still segregated, though, still racist, but it wasn't the same. What the Southerners found, and what the Northerners found, is that they were different. And the now, in a book by Thomas Sewell, it's a great book. It talks about black rednecks and white uh, liberals. Um, in his book, Doctor Thomas Sewell, who studies a lot of ethnic groups, great books. Um, he's the, he's a conservative black man, but he's actually unbeknownst to him is a black nationalist, because he's saying that ethnic groups work together better. That's one of the reasons why they have so much success. You look at this ethnic group coming to the country and you're mad that they have success, but they have systems with them. They have a playbook that's usually stronger than the ethnic groups that are already there. And so um, the African-Americans, that came to the city did not have much in common with the, the already you know indigenous or the African Americans that were already in the cities in New York in Philadelphia in Chicago and they were different people. Sewell goes ahead with uh, in his book and and gives and goes into why, which is amazing. He the blacks from the south were around other poor whites in the south. And he's saying the blacks being around the poor whites of the South, they, they emulated and took on a lot of their characteristics that were not in line with blacks in the North. It makes a whole lot of sense. He's saying that the, the indigenous population, white population, poor population of the South, immigrated to the United States from the British Isles, where they were the poor people. They were the people in the mountains. They were the people in the fields. They were the Irish. They came during the potato famine, but they came before the potato the potato famine. in In their ecosystem, in the in the herdsman ecosystem, the Celtic ecosystem in the British Isles, they were highly prone to violence with one another because they. I think that whatever animals they used. To um, what what other animals they used to graze water? Oh, the sheep herders uh, they re- they would get into fight over you know who would drink from this water, whose sheep would drink from the water, whose cows would graze on these on this pasture, and it uh, it was pretty serious. If you allow someone to take over your point your uh, grazing area, it meant you didn't eat. And it meant your family didn't eat. And so these people were highly prone to violence. They were highly prone to aggressiveness. Uh, Any slight, any disrespect, uh, they immediately um, would react violently. It's amazing. Here's what's amazing about this, talking about the Southern. Now, what about that? It's not consistent with black people. And when you talk about, the Irish, when the Irish, let's talk about the Irish, when they were discriminated against um, and, and stereotyped when they came to America after the Irish potato famine of 1850, the Irish was said to be what? Highly prone to having sex, highly prone to fight. Notre, the, uh, Notre Dame, they're not the negotiating Irish of Notre Dame. Notre Dame is the fighting Irish of Notre Dame. So this was the stereotype of Irish people. They liked to be in front of people talking. They were good at singing and talking, and they were confident people, arrogant people. Um, they uh, highly—they were considered stupid, not educated. Uh, they didn't value education. And uh, they were very, any slight, any disrespect would be made with immediate violent reaction. They had no problem doing it. This. this is the Irish of 1850 that came after the Irish potato famine. So these are the Irish that are actually coming to the inner cities with the African-Americans during a similar period, and not that long long after. You know, in the 1890s, 1880s, Irish are coming to America with black people. And uh, so, but the Irish that are already in America, of Irish ancestry and Celtic ancestry, and these herdsmen ancestry, who were here from the early 1800s, around the slaves, and Dr. Sewell says the, the slaves took on that. Now, here's, here's his point that's real. The slave was cut off from his home culture anyway. We know that. He was cut off from the language of his original home. He was cut off from the customs, most for the most part, from his original home. They tried to, to intertwine that a little bit, but for the most part, they were cut off from their own humanity and their own reality. Obviously, they would emulate the closest cultures around him. The Irish overseers and the Irish people around them were people around the black people. So that's absolutely logical on Dr. Thomas Sewell's point of view, saying that the blacks emulated their ghettoism, basically, from redneckism. And the redneckism um, was gotten from the British Isles people that lived out in the range. And, of course, there were, and again, uh, and, and he makes a great point, there wasn't that much law and order there. The king was in, you know, London. The king, and the king just didn't care about that. It didn't have law like that. So you had to take care of your own laws out there in that open space. On them because literally when they were in the British Isles, be it Ireland, Scotland, Wales, or what have you, they were out in far off territories where there was not much central authority. They had to take care of their own authority. They had to take care books and hear a similar theme. I read another book by I think Malcolm uh, Goldwyn about outliers and how uh, whatever it was you, he was talking about patterns in in American society that you can document and see. And so somebody said in modern times this is not 200 years ago 300 years ago, this is within the last 20 years or 1990s that apparently southern white men Um, are very aggressive when slighted by anybody. So he's saying a Southern, if you walk down and bump a Southern white man because he comes from their culture, going back to the British Isles, not even dealing with blacks, not even dealing with segregation, not even dealing with slavery, before that, a Southern white man... And he, and he said he doesn't care how, even if the southern white man was a mythic, if he was, he don't care how small he is, if he felt you disrespected him and went by, he he would come back on you and do something back to you. Like, and he, he's saying to a man that's typically going to be a southern white man that you're going to have that response to. And this is a modern setting. This is not 100 years ago. This is 10 years ago, 5 years ago that you could see this pattern in, in civilization in American society with Southern people. Thomas Sewell is saying that is what you see in the black males and black people in ghettoism. They learned that from the slaves in the segregated area around Southern whites and Southern poor whites and their type of aggressiveness. And so I make that point only to explain the lack of continuity, strong continuity in the black populations with the new migrating blacks from the south coming to the north with uh, the northern blacks. They were two different types of people. And so that made building a society that much harder. A community is just a group of people that live together, there's no violence, they agree on certain things. They try to keep their lawns um, cut. Your lawn's not cut. Somebody, hey, can you cut your lawn? You know, they, they celebrate every now and then. They say hi. That's a community. That's a neighborhood. A society and a civilization is that exists. A a, a, society, a civilization can exist without a community. A society can exist without a community or a neighborhood. A community and a neighborhood cannot exist without a society or a civilization for which it should be inside of. Because the societies and civilizations have playbooks, rules. They have, they have ordinances ordin- ordinances that, when broken, action is taken to make sure you work within this criteria. And when there's a threat to a community within this society or civilization the society or civilization takes active action and it is collective action making it more powerful more effective and so when you have black people migrating yes they migrated to communities but they weren't able to necessarily create a overall society or civilization and to a point the the, the actual societies that they created were pacific society. So in New Orleans, they have the brown paper bag um, thing. It's called. It's a famous, um, uh, a, a famous quote or a famous um, rule in New Orleans for its societies, its so-called fraternities, its social organizations. If you were, uh, if you were darker than a brown paper bag. You could not get into their this organization, period. And I think that brown paper bag might have been for the NAACP. I know the NAACP early was usually light skinned people. So that so now we have evidence of black societies, but they were societies for a specific segment of the black population, light skinned people. And I bet you they were they were professional light skinned people. They were upper class light skinned people. They certainly not were they. They certainly were not for all black people. And so you do not have evidence of an overall society for the black populations as they migrated to the inner cities, thus making any efforts that they made towards security, prosperity, moving forward, pretty marginalized. So whatever they did, they could have done a lot more if they were more central. And so that was a consequence of not having a central culture, that was a consequence of not having everyone on the same page. And so, um, you see this theme throughout Black history and Black civilization. We have a lot of accomplishments. We have a lot of great people doing great things, but unfortunately, since there was not a centralized a centralized way of executing. The individual successes, they're great examples, but the the whole aren't able to necessarily benefit from these individual achievements and successes. And a centralized culture would give you a better chance of having that. And now, I've chosen uh, different books to to cite as examples of this. And uh, again, I'm going back to, and I'm glad I went there before, back to Uh, Manning Marable's book, How Capitalism Underdeveloped Black America. Um, uh, And again, Dr. Marable takes a typical, uh, a normal 60s intellectual overview of how the system, um, you know, underdeveloped the black race, that a lot of our inequalities that exist were kind of planned out. And I absolutely agree But in moving forward, we also have to take a look at how the lack of organization, the lack of true unity and execution made blacks more vulnerable towards disenfranchisement as they were in the slave trade. That's my point, that the lack of continuity in black people made black people almost as vulnerable in America in the 1960s and 50s, post-World War II, as they were uh, in the continent of Africa in the 1600s at the beginning of the slave trade. The lack of continuity, and I'm citing little examples, is this part of the book, um, he talks about the ambiguous politics of the black church. And so what Manning, Bo- Manning-, Manning Bo- Dr. Manning Marable, Professor Manning Bo- Marable, is citing in his book um, How Capitalism Underdeveloped Black America, is that little disconnect between the black church and the black civil rights movement and in the, in the black power movement of the 60s. And he's absolutely right. And, of course, I say the lack of culture and the lack of, of continuity, you know, essentially is the difference. There's an economics difference between the black clergy and the masses of black people, that they didn't want to necessarily rock the boat. But let's see these points that Dr. Manning is citing in his book. Uh, this is page 210, and uh, again, how, how capitalism underdeveloped black America, the, ambig- the ambiguous politics of the black church. And here we are, uh, page 210, top chapter, top, um, top paragraph. On April 4, 1968, Martin Luther King was assassinated while assisting 1,300 black sanitation workers in Local 1733 of the American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees, the AFL-CIO, in a strike in Memphis, Tennessee. The middle class reformer had become a militant proponent of peace, economic democ- uh, democracy, and the black working class interest. Ah. And so... Good, great job by Doctor Manning, uh, Manning, right here. Um, King concluded finally, and then in the in the paragraph down here, and then, you know I'm, I, I see a little bit of this here. King's strengths and weaknesses. Uh, King's strengths and weaknesses were not his alone, but those of his social group, the black clergy. His moral appears for nonviolence racial harmony, desegregation was shared by previous generations of black middle-class reformers. His his initial reluctance to emphasize economic issues, his implicit anti-communism and desire for compromise rather than confrontation with white establishment was also the popular ideology of the Negro petty bourgeoisie, where King departed from Uh, from his contemporaries was his resignation uh, recognition that the black ministers as a group had to play a decisive role in the reconstruction of the U.S. civil and political society. The greatest political contradiction confronting the masses of blacks, the system of white supremacy, was, of course, the primary target of, of King's efforts. So again, so he's saying black uh, the black cur- cur- clergy have to take a, a decisive role in changing the status quo in society all right um, in the in the process of struggle however King concluded finally that the defeat of racial segregation in and of itself was insufficient not enough for creating a just and decent society for all clergy um, uh, um, King followed the tradition of earlier black activist clergy, Henry Holland Garnett, Henry Turner, Nat Turner, by calling for radical and fundamental change. Without hesitation, he broke from many of his own advisors and supporters, and like Malcolm, raised many public policy issues um, which could not be easily resolved within the existing system. Okay, so, wow. <laughs> this is This is pretty serious. But is consistent with my point. You have Martin Luther King Jr., and I stated this before, at the time of his assassination, Martin Luther King Jr. was very unpopular in black America, particularly with the black clergy. So uh, Martin Luther King Jr. ultimately realized that without changing economics, civil rights and getting civil rights um, legally was not enough that it had to be a wholesale changing of the overall system, and that was a break from the existing black clergy system. It's the black church. So Dr. King was going against the status quo, and the black church really did not, church leaders, did not want to upset the status quo. They wanted little changes, civil rights, the right to vote, but changing too much was a bit too much for them. And many, uh, professor Manable does a great job citing this. I, I say that from a cultural standpoint, the black clergy has a different economic reality than the masses of black people. Thus making his, his interests political, social, and economic different from the masses. And that's a problem. Obviously from, uh, collective action and so uh, and, and now maybe it's maybe maybe the problem with the black race is not in, in that the black preachers uh, you know I'm not saying they shouldn't get paid and they shouldn't have nice salaries I'm saying why are they the sole leadership in the black community other ethnic groups do not are not led, and there's a book that talks about this. Other ethnic groups on this planet tend to not be led by religious leaders anyway. All ethnic groups have religious leaders that have a lot of influence, but they're not necessarily doing the direct leading and making the policies. All right? And in this book, uh, I think it's called The Black Man Obsolete, and alienated, it's somewhere in my house, in my house. Wow, um, isolated, alienated, obsolete. It talks about the black community being led by professional athletes, entertainers, and religious leaders. When other ethnic groups and other races and other countries are led by businessmen, generals, and politicians, and then statesmen, and of course. On the other side, obviously we have clergy, great clergies, uh, that actually operate as statesmen. But their power base, you know, when you're dealing with other people that are led by generals and businessmen and politicians, and you're led by professional athletes, uh, entertainers, and and religious leader, the power that's not apples to apples. And so, he's citing that that's one reason why your power is not as strong as it should be and could be. And so, in, in, in citing that, that disconnect between the black church and uh, the black masses and its movement and its indigenous movements, and of course the civil rights movement, let's be clear, the civil rights movement would not have existed without black clergy, clerical leadership. So I'm not saying they shouldn't have been doing what they're doing, I am saying that They were more for the establishment and not upsetting the apple cart. I'm saying, why aren't there other segments of the black community that have comparable power in the first place? Businessmen, generals, politicians that have the equal ability to create a mass movement. Other ethnic groups have all of those things, and we clearly don't, based on my reading. And so I'm not saying so. If you either... You say, hey, the clergy make too much money, making them like professional athletes, so they're only pursuing their own interests, so maybe they shouldn't be paid as much. I'm not saying that. That may be the reality. I'm saying where are your other leaders? And in a centralized culture, if, you're, if your power base is culturally based, that would create those leaders that could do that. That would create the politician, the businessman, and the general or police chief that is connected to the ethnic group, ethnically, to pursue their own ethnic interests. And so, so when we look at black domination, that's what I'm talking about. Another point, and again, the, another point of the black domination is its reactiveness as opposed to proactiveness. And that's where the consequences are as far as being your inability to come together and actively pursue power and create power and create power um power basis for yourself the consequences are dire and so we have the uh abortion rights bill coming in today 2021 september abortion rights uh are now under siege in the state of texas like you can't basically you can't get an abortion after six weeks And uh, but uh, in talking to the feminists and women, that that essentially nullifies abortion. It's not really possible to tell if you're pregnant within six weeks of impregnation. So that essentially uh, uh, neutralizes abortion. And so now all of the left wing people are talking about what are we going to do? We need to protest and all that. This is a perfect example of black domination Um, because abortion was was checkmated in two thousand sixteen by Donald Trump putting conservative judges in the 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 in the federal court and the redistricting of voting zones and, and gerrymandering of voting zones back then. That's so you're 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 waiting on what are we gonna do about abortion when they've already you've already been checkmated. The people who have been put in place to neutralize And gut abortion rights, but they they've been doing this for several years now. Where were you then? Why weren't you proactive? And uh, so it it was a two edged sword. It was which started back with Obama in two thousand eight. There was an active um, role by the Republican Party or conservatives or the Koch brothers, whoever. The right once Barack Obama was elected, you know. Instead of saying, okay, we got to have policies that are more equal and, you know, equally based because there are a lot of people that feel disenfranchised, not just black people, and they feel like a Barack Obama is their savior, they went about dismantling the voting rights of predominantly black uh, areas so, uh, nationally. This is a fact that was stated on NPR, and they said it real quietly because you know it really implicates it says what dumbasses the liberals are you know like they use 30 million dollars to try to get redistricting in certain voting areas to marginalize the voting of predominantly black voting areas giving them more voting rights in the legislatures in the in the states uh, and and hopefully the the congress the United States Congress uh, they said it kind of quiet too because they like yeah, they kind of said they were going to do this. Meaning, this was this is public knowledge. This was not some this wasn't even a backroom deal that they did to uh, do it behind everybody's back. They said we're going to use this this money to try to affect the voting roles of people, so people don't have the voting power that they the masses don't have the voting power that they probably should. Uh, giving us if I'm taking away. The masses' voting power. I'm. I don't have to do anything for the ones who don't. I'm automatically giving them more power than they probably should. So, if there's seventy percent of the people uh, live in this area of a particular ethnic group, and I'm only going to let, um, I'm only going to let fifty percent vote. What you do for the thirty percent is irrelevant. That thirty percent has. 20 percent more power just because you restricted to 70 percent. So that 30 percent is like 50 percent, maybe even 51 percent because you're controlling the whole process anyway, which is usually done by Republicans. But that's whose whose fault is that? That is the fault of that is the fault of the people who are not proactive. The redistricting issue was an issue that maybe started before Obama, but definitely uh, after Obama was made it. Uh, and $30 million was used to do this. Once uh, Donald Trump was elected president of the United States, the first thing he did, oh, they did they, they were. Did it, uh, that's right. They actually, as soon as Barack Obama was uh, elected, they made a, a, an assault on the Congress, getting more co- conservatives back into Congress. They neutralized uh, Barack Obama's ability to elect a new uh, Supreme Court justice. They kept him from voting, uh, selecting one. They allowed Donald Trump to put in two. That's right. So this has been a a, a yearly, this has been going on for eight years. So when you look at abortion rights, this is not something that was just done. And so now you want to do something now, but you've already been checkmated. This is called military science. This is called people using their resources to achieve their interests at your expense and you being reactive, I'm saying that centralized culture would be a major um, help to that because it can activate people beforehand, not after. But anyway, we're going 55 minutes this week um, trying to make my case for a need uh, of a centralized African culture in the, in the black community and the consequences of not having that. Uh, I hope I've made that point today. I really enjoyed my time. I'll be talking to to you guys next week. Have a great weekend. Have a great holiday. Enjoy yourself. Peace.